everybody. Welcome to the North Coast Chronicles podcast, Tales from the Great Lakes. I'm your host, Helen Brohl. Please join me over the next 11 months as I share the beauty, the nature, the culture, and adventures of the Great Lakes, America's fourth seacoast. Today, our show is about where the boats go with Captain Russ Brohl. I'm pretty excited about this subject because I'm kind of into boats, particularly the ships that ply the Great Lakes. We'll learn why these ships putting around the Great Lakes are invaluable to our nation's economy, about the whole subculture of people who follow them, and what it's like to be captain of these gigantic freighters. I hope you were able to listen to our inaugural podcast called March of the Mayflies with Dr. Carmen Trisler, now available on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, Spotify, Apple, and wherever you might get your pods. Go to coastalnewstoday.com to check out the amazing catalog of other podcasts hosted at ASPN related to our coastal resources. With us, as always, is our trusty engineer, Beach Shack Tyler Buckingham. Hi, Tyler. Hi, Helen. How's it going? Pretty good. I remembered that you said you had done a a podcast in the patch about beach shacks. That's right. Yeah, I actually uh, hosted a little show here on ASPN called the Beach Shack Podcast. Uh, Believe it or not. Well, now I can only think of you as a guy sitting in the beach shack with a ukulele. Oh, well, I will accept that. Uh... Though I would have to say sub in maybe a guitar instead of a ukulele. Oh. Uh, But I do love hanging around a good beach shack with a musical instrument, Helen. Excellent. Well, I should have asked you to do the the music for this podcast, but we'll we'll do that for another time. Um, I I think you'll agree with me that our first podcast with Dr. Trisler, who is the resident aquatic entomologist at The Ohio State University's Stone Laboratory on South Bass Island, Ohio, was really fun. I understand, Tyler, that you were so captivated by these fascinating insects that you're now selling chocolate-covered mayflies online. Hey, congrats on the new business. (laughs) Helen, well, you know, I couldn't keep it a secret for long. (laughs) I know. Now you can't wait to to meet up with some mayflies and learn about them. So no, Tyler is not really selling chocolate-covered mayflies like people are selling chocolate-covered cicadas, but it's a fun idea, and we had a really good time. After the first podcast, I heard from a friend of mine, Commander Alice Shoemate. Alice is the maritime guru with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, but also a Great Lakes scale herself, being born in Ohio and raised in the Detroit, Michigan area. Alice shared lovely memories of having been married on Mackinac Island, then drove across the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which we refer to as the UP, and took a ferry boat out and hiked on Isle Royale, which is a national park on Lake Superior, where she spent her honeymoon. She then regaled that she and her husband then continued their circumnavigation of Lake Michigan and drove down the lakefront to Chicago. Now, this is one of many circle tours that you can join around the Great Lakes, often taking you into Canada. And thank you so much for sharing your great story, Alice. It does uh, make us want to take such a tour ourselves. As I noticed um, in our First and our last podcast, the Great Lakes were carved over 14,000 years ago, creating a largely natural navigation waterway from the mouth of the St. Lawrence River to Duluth, Minnesota and Thunder Bay, Ontario, and around the Horn down to Chicago in Lake Michigan. I've had the good fortune of riding on ships through the locks on the St. Lawrence River and the Welland Canal and in the upper Great Lakes. I'm going to host a future podcast called The Great Portage of 1829, when the first Welland Canal was built to take ships around Niagara Falls. I mean, so think about it. This is just a short while after the War of 1812, and engineers were able to build a navigation passageway around the mighty Niagara Falls. So that first canal was only eight feet deep, but nonetheless, pretty impressive, and certainly eclipsed the Erie Canal at that time. 
So that can elevate 1829. And the engineering would raise a ship 326 feet, which is over 99 meters, going south to north. And it's still the case today. But there are about 3,000 ships carrying 40 million tons of cargo that pass through the modern Welland Canal per year. And you might not realize that the canal was a major factor in the growth of Toronto, Ontario, something I just didn't even think about. And looking forward, I'm looking forward to talking about this engineering feat in the future podcast. So I hope you'll all join us. There is both international shipping in the Great Lakes, uh, which are vessels carrying cargo from foreign ports into the Great Lakes via the St. Lawrence River, and what we might refer to as domestic vessels carrying primarily bulk cargoes like grain, iron ore, cement, gravel, salt. And they do that between ports in the Great Lakes, but they stay above the Welland Canal. So they don't even get past Lake Erie into Lake Ontario. At the start of the show, I mentioned a subculture of people who follow these domestic freighters, which are called Lakers. They're called Lakers because they were built to stay above the Welland Canal, which means they're too wide and too long to get into the canal. But that's okay, because they were built to carry a maximum load between ports in the Great Lakes. There are both ships that fly the U.S. flag and use, use, use U.S. merchant mariners. And there are Canadian Lakers. Many of the Canadian Lakers were built to serve both the Great Lakes and international trades, but that's not the case with the U.S. flag fleet. It is one of the reasons these ships are so special and why they have a cult following, believe it or not, of boat nerds. So thankfully, you don't have to listen to me prattle on about Lakers because we have a super boat nerd with us today who also happens to have spent his career as a Laker captain, Captain Russ Broll. Welcome, Captain Russ. Hello. <laughs> hey, Russ. We're glad you could join us today. Happy to be here. Thank you. And Tyler, I bet you noticed that Russ and I share the, last, the same last name. I did notice that, Helen. Well, Captain Russ is my brother, I admit. He's my baby brother, to be exact. And when I was planning this podcast, I knew there were a number of experienced folks out there that would be great guests. But frankly, we get a really great twofer with Captain Russ. He is both an admitted boat nerd and can talk about sailing the Great Lakes. Today's podcast is brought to you by Collins Engineers, a family-owned engineering firm based in Chicago, using the most modern technologies to provide structural and transportation analysis, design, and underwater engineering to the Great Lakes and the world for over 40 years. And also by World Shipping, proudly celebrating over 60 years on the shores of Lake Erie, from vessel agency services on the Great Lakes to managing complex international supply chains, go to worldshipping.com. I'm going to start off with a story, Captain Russ, because um, there's a lot of them related to you and your interest in boats. So um, I shared the story, uh, excuse me, um, our family would spend summers on Middle Bass Island. And to get to Middle Bass Island in Lake Erie, you rode ferry boats. Now, there were two ferry boat companies that served Middle Bass Island. And of course, there was a schedule that they used to call on our island as well as another island and on the mainland. As a small kid, Russ would run a living room version of those schedules. He would say a chair, a stool, or any other item would be used, would be the designated ferry boat. And then there were spots around a tiny living room that were the docks they called on. So it seems to me, Russ, that you would imitate the specific horn of a boat as they came to your pretend dock. And did you even tie them up to this dock, which would then be another table or chair? Is that correct? Do I remember that correctly? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's embarrassing to talk about it now, but yeah, I was pretty nerdy. <laughs> so um, uh, what I do remember, though, Russ, is that no family member was free from getting scolded by the baby of the family, which is you, if we disturbed your vessel traffic scheme. So it was like, if we had to use a chair, it was like, don't touch it, don't touch it. 
So, so, so I think that's a pretty cute story from my perspective. If you see this little kid moving chairs around, pretending to do the horns of ferry boats. But Captain Russ, what appealed to you about those ferry boats? What called to you? Well, I guess because we had so much access to the, the ferry landing right from where our cottage was, I could run down and meet those boats because I had to be there to catch their lines and put them on the dock spile so they could tie the boats up. And all the crew members on the boat would throw me bubble gum or a quarter to buy an ice cream cone, and, and they started treating me like a friend. And so I guess hooked on that, and I probably should have been doing other things, but I just just became all consumed in that and in, in the ferry boats. Um, and that was what my desire in life. I was going to run a ferry boat, but then it led to other bigger and better boats, I guess. But you did work on the ferry boats. It seems to me that when you turned 18, I think the first job you did was work on one of the ferry boats that actually called on Middle Bass, right? 17. 17, and I got that letter from the owner of the ferry line, and that was the, one of the best days of my life. I think I might have read that letter every single day saying I was going to be the deckhand on the motor vessel West Shore. So there was the beginning of my journey, so to speak. Well, I know that you were you were adopted by certainly the captain and the crew of that boat. And uh, I think it was kind of cool that in the end you got to do the West Shore, as Russ said. And Russ can tell you uh, at this point, I think, where the West Shore is living now because he is such a boat nerd. So um, it's, it's not like, though, one day you decided you're going to be a captain on the freighters. Now, how did that connection happen? How did you get from the thought of ferry boats to the thought of the ore carriers in the Great Lakes? I think it was probably I got put in the bilges of the ferry boats and found out what a scraper was and a paintbrush in a very confined area going under fuel tanks and uh, places that no one ever sees. And uh, after about a year of that, I thought maybe I should think about doing something else. So our father who was in the maritime industry with the port of Lorain, Ohio, said, hey, there's a maritime academy on the Great Lakes where you could go to school. And it was a three-year, year-round school. It was called the Great Lakes Maritime Academy in Traverse City, Michigan. So I hopped in my car and went up and saw the school, and they told me that there's lots of jobs, and I would uh, achieve my unlimited Mace license and also a first class pilot's license, which I don't know if you want me to expound on that, but we got to have pilots on the Great Lakes. So that's a, that's a huge achievement. Um, it's a very extensive uh, exam. It's uh, all open and it was all uh, um, oral, uh, not oral. Um, Written exam? Um, I can't think of the, the terminology, but it wasn't a multiple choice. But anyhow, um, I was able to get a license in Traverse City after three years. And every steamship company on the Great Lakes had promises of being a captain someday. I think that we were so naive thinking that was our first question was, how soon can I be a captain? Well, unfortunately, you got to learn to crawl before you can walk. So um, I finally got hired after I got out of the school. And and, um, 30-some years later, I uh, achieved my goal of, driving the, the largest ship on the Great Lakes. Oh, that's pretty cool. So for so folks, um, there are, they may be interested to learn that there are um, a number of Merchant Mariner Academies, and Merchant Mariners are 
<clears throat> you know, those folks who get a license to to pilot, to drive these boats, whether they're in the Great Lakes or in the deep draft or on our, our domestic coastline or on the, even on the inland waterways. And there um, is a, uh, a uh, national merchant marine academy called the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy uh, run by the government, a federal government. And then there are six state schools, of which one is the Great Lakes Maritime Academy in Traverse City, as Russ said. So uh, if you want to learn how to drive a boat, <clears throat> you want to be a mate, you want to be an engineer, you can look up one of these state schools, uh, and they're, they're basically in some respects trade schools, um, to become um, work on the vessels. Now, Russ, though, um, you don't have to actually go to school, though, to work on a ship in the Great Lakes, right? That is correct. You can achieve a, a license by, as they say, coming up through the hawse pipe. Of course, the hawse pipe is where the anchor chain runs through to the outside of the hull to the anchor. But uh, you can work your way up through the ranks and uh, starting out as a deckhand and eventually uh, achieve your license that way. And you can do it pretty quickly in that manner, too. Yes, you have to. It's a learn as you go kind of experience, um, definitely. So when you got out of school, Russ, at the Merchant Marine Academy, excuse me. So, oops, sorry about that. The Great Lakes Maritime Academy. Um, you you went right on as a third mate. Is that correct? After you got your license? <laughs> um, well, no, no, I had not achieved my first dream, and that's being a captain of a ferry boat. And because at that time in 1979. The economy was going pretty strong, particularly in the steel industry, that every steamship company says, we'll take you anytime you want. And uh, so I took three months to operate a ferry boat. So I did that until after Labor Day. And then I shipped out with the uh, Interlake Steamship Company. And uh, Interlake's based out of Cleveland, right? That is correct. And the, and um, I might add, within the next two years, half those steamship companies had all gone out of business. That promised the, the you know a bright future because of the recession of the early eighties. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, that that's well, it is. You're up subject to the marketplace, right? So if there's uh, nothing to carry, the ships aren't working or operating, and then that is one of the challenges of working well just in the marketplace. So so Russ, um, I mentioned the term Lakers, and Lakers are the ships that work just in the Great Lakes, and the international ships are called Salties. Um, which makes sense, Lakers and Salties. And you worked on Lakers in particular. And what are these boats like? I mean, these Lakers, the U.S. flag Lakers, generally speaking. What do they look like? Are they kind of like what people would see in the port of New York, New Jersey, uh, if they went down to the port? No, structurally, they're, they're, they're different because we have different wavelengths on the Great Lakes. Um, and the Lakers are built for longitudinal strength, so they can work in a sea. Um, uh, I think a laker would might have trouble in, in uh, some of those uh, giant seas in the North Atlantic because the biggest wavelength we get on the Great Lakes is probably 300 feet uh, between crests of, of, of um, between the waves. But also all our ships have all become pretty much all self-unloaders, which we have the ability to unload our cargo where most saltwater boats, probably all of them, have to rely on shoreside uh, facilities to unload those vessels. I think that's probably the biggest thing. And also, of course, the saltwater vessels don't have pilots on board. Um, they're usually all they're foreign flagged and foreign sailors, so they have 
no familiar, familiarization of the lakes, so they have to take a pilot. We're on the Lakers. We all are licensed as first-class pilots. Um, and, of course, most of all, our, our seamen are U.S. citizens. Uh, um, but I've never been on a saltwater boat to tell you the other comparisons, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think a lot of people think of big big um, international ships as with all the containers on board, um, you know, carrying all those sneakers from China to Walmart shelves. But in the Great Lakes, it's not a container system. So you're not moving containers. So your ships are marrying, uh, uh, carrying bulk and break bulk. So when you work for Interlake Steamship, what was your primary um, cargo that you carried around the lakes? Um, uh, I, it, when I first started, the primary cargo was iron ore, and the second commodity was coal. Um, later on in our career, they started bringing uh, more coal from the uh, out in the uh, uh, central states, uh, the, from they call the powder district. Uh, it was low sulfur coal. And they started shipping that from the head of the lake, Superior, Wisconsin, down to the lower lakes, which was completely opposite of the way the trend used to be prior to the 80s. It was all southern coal going in the upper lakes. And then we hauled probably maybe 20% was limestone. And uh, we hauled some grain also. Um, uh, usually the Buffalo, New York, occasionally they would take grain to Oswego, but um, mostly iron ore. And it was a ball cargo, I guess. I didn't mention that earlier. So uh, that takes some of the luster off the job. We were on a big floating dump truck. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, it's much more than that, obviously, and a lot more sophisticated. So, you you know, um, it uh, is. yeah, so, you know, when, when people talk about Great Lakes shipping, they often think of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald and, and uh, the song by Gordon Lightfoot. And so um, people tend to think about the, the opening of the song, the big, like they called Gichigumi, which is actually Lake Superior. Um, and they talk about the skies of November turning gloomy. And we'll talk about what it's like for you to work in what it was like to work in really rough weather. But what I caught from that song was really the second verse when they talk about that the ship was the pride of the American side come back from some mill in Wisconsin. And as big freighters go, it was bigger than most with a crew and good captain well-seasoned. And then concluding some terms with a couple of steel firms when they left fully loaded for Cleveland. So what you were talking about is exactly that that when you used to move iron ore, which was, it was a form of, like, they, it got turned into taconite, right? Isn't that like a, they modify the iron ore? I'm not sure what it, they do to make it a taconite, but you're actually moving taconite, correct? Correct. The, the, the concentration of, of iron in the, uh, in the uh, from the ore mines were, um, well, the, the, the heavy concentration of iron had been depleted. So this is a way to extend the life of the iron ore mines was to turn it into a concentrated pellet. It's like the size of a marble. And so they would come from the pelletizing plants, and it also made facilitated easy loading and unloading of the of that product compared to the uh, when you had the raw ore because it was could be very sticky and it would freeze, and um, you couldn't unload it or load it in the, during the cold season. So um, it pretty much uh, saved the uh, the uh, iron ore mines for years and years to come, and it has. So in in, in the the ore is mined pretty much in the Masabi mining range, right, in Minnesota area? Well, we also have the mines in the in the Upper Peninsula around Marquette uh, in Ishpeming, Michigan. They call that the Tilden Mine. Um, so, yeah, 
uh, other than the UP of Michigan, it's all comes from um, the Mesabi Range areas in Minnesota. But there's also the mines in Labrador um, in Canada also, which uh, had opened in the late 50s. But uh, not so much of that is shipped back down in the lakes. A lot of that is shipped overseas. So if you were sailing um, to pick up iron ore, let's say from the Mesabi Mining Range, you would go to Superior, Wisconsin or Duluth, Minnesota? Is that where you pick it up? Yes, and or Two Harbors, Minnesota or Silver Bay, Minnesota. And uh, also Taconite Harbor, which has closed. There was other facilities also. And Marquette, Michigan, we did. We hauled a lot of ore out of Marquette, Michigan, to the, uh, uh, the Ford Rouge uh, steel mill, which is now, I think, Cleveland Cliffs. But uh, so we hauled a lot of ore, it, uh, I, a lot of ore out of both, both regions, I guess. So, so for the lyrics from the Edmund Fitzgerald, when they say that concluding some terms with a couple of steel firms when they left fully loaded to Cleveland, did you ever do that? Leave fully loaded for Cleveland? Well, we didn't. We didn't uh, uh, do that trade into Cleveland. We would go to primarily Lorain, Ohio, and then it would be transshipped to Cleveland. Um, and you can't take a fully loaded ship up the Cuyahoga River, so that's uh, you know we're you know we're apples and oranges. Yeah. So one of the things I always wondered about because you talked about some ports that people probably never heard of. So I was thinking Superior and 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 Duluth. And you talked about Taconite Harbor and was it Two Rivers was the other one? Two Harbors, Two Harbors. Two Harbors, okay. So so where is Two Harbors? It's about uh, 20 miles up the shoreline uh, as you went up on the North Shore from Duluth, Minnesota. And it was a U.S. US steel uh, shipping facility. Um, and, uh, and also it's a year-round port because it never freezes, uh, rarely freezes in that harbor. Why? Wonder why. Uh, uh, if, if they didn't have to close the Sioux locks in the wintertime, we would, they would probably try to ship year-round. Well, speaking of the Sioux, so so um, how do you get a ship up to Duluth, Minnesota? <laughs> um, well, you know, how do you get there from the Sioux? Well, you have prescribed courses, recommended courses. I was curious, though, like, like you have to go through locks uh, at Sioux St. Marie, Michigan, right? And those locks are run by the Corps of Engineers. So what's it like to take a ship? And how long is like the ship? A thousand feet? Um, the, the larger ship is 1,016 feet. And of course, the pole lock, the largest lock, is 1,200 feet long and 110 feet wide. And of course, the thousand foot ships are 105 feet wide. So that leaves you two and a half feet on either side of the ship to squeeze in there. So it's... Uh, you got to go very slow, especially when you're loaded, because you have to displace all that water in that lock chamber. And there's very, uh, very few areas for that water to flow uh, out of that lock. So you got to push the boat pretty hard, particularly coming downbound, upbound. Um, it looks like the boat's not going to fit. And it's always people are always awestruck that when we carry guests on our freighters to see how they, how that's done. But it's it's um, without getting too technical. Um it's uh, it, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting uh, maneuver. Yeah, it sounds like it takes a lot of experience to get there, and a lot of experience in order to be the captain of a ship that gets there and does that. So, how long did you have to sail before you could become a captain? Well, you have to uh, achieve. You move up from third mate, second mate, first mate, and once you have 
six months as a first mate, you are eligible to write for a master's license. Now, I received my license in 1979. I finally had enough time as a first mate. So in 1992, I wrote for my unlimited master's license. And then it was two years later, I started training uh, to be a relief captain um, on the Masabi Minor, which was a thousand, thousand foot, a thousand six foot long ship. So that was my first assignment. So that was how many years from 79 to 94. Um, so, and, and, uh, of course I never knew as much as I thought I did. Um, so like I said, you gotta learn to crawl before you can walk. And, uh, it was very nervous. My first, my first assignment, but once you get that first one under your belt, it's, that's what they said to 007. The first time's always the toughest. <laughs> so um, um, uh, where was that first trip? Your first trip as a captain was from where to where on the Masabi Minor? It was from Lorraine, Ohio to uh, Taconite Harbor, Minnesota, which, of course, Taconite has since closed um, about 15 years ago, but uh, that's up on the north shore of, of, of Lake Superior also, um, probably about 70 miles east of um, Duluth on the North Shore. How long does that trip take? Uh, it's about 62 hours up, so two and a half days up. Oh. So a round trip from Lorraine to Tacknet Harbor would be six and a half days. Yeah, but you're not like on the um, in the pilot house or, in, you know, the whole time, right? I mean, you got to sleep. Yes, yes. That's, that's the most difficult part of the job because you work 24-7. The ship never stops unless it's for weather or delays or loading or unloading. So it's a very uh, it's it's hard to adapt a, uh, a regular sleep schedule. So I would have to be up in the locks in the rivers and making docks and departing docks. So I may have uh, a stretch of twenty hours where I am off at one time, say across Lake Superior. But if you have weather or you're dealing with ice, then I've gone 27 hours without sleep, which isn't good. Plus, um, yeah, you're, 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 the fatigue factor is always a, always a, always a um, part of the job. That's the hardest part of the job is working all night. Yeah, I can imagine. So you guys work, um, uh, was it like four on, four off kind of a thing? Four hours on, four hours off? How? What kind of a schedule did you keep? I mean, obviously the captain, you said you had to be – on the deck or, you know, up in the pilot house every time you went through a river or a lock. Got it. It's 12 hours to, to come downbound through this um, from Lake Huron to Lake Erie, which would be going through the St. Clair River, Lake St. Clair and Detroit River. So that's 12 hours. I have to be up uh, in the pilot house or I prefer to be up in the pilot house, particularly loaded. Um, if you're running light, which means we're not loaded and we're only carrying ballast water and we're not loaded so deep, I could sometimes stay in my room uh, if I had a good first mate that I could trust, but I couldn't sleep, and that, just because you can't, that's what they pay you for, uh, to to make sure that boat uh, gets up and down the lake. And uh, human errors is, is uh, you know, that's it's always there. Yeah, it's a scary part of it, I'm sure. Um, always making sure that, especially if you're fatigued, it's got to be challenging. And uh, so, what kind of what would your crew consider you as a captain? Were you like, did they love you? Did they hate you? Did they tolerate you? What is it like to be a captain? I mean, you're, you're basically the boss of the boat. It's like this big, um, you know, 
almost like a big manufacturing plant. You're in a big plant, a floating plant, right? They call them in the Army, uh, Army Corps of Engineers calls, calls them their floating plant. And I equate that to like running, you know, manufacturing plant, but it's this ship and it's big and it's very expensive and it's valuable and you've got people's lives in your hands. So what kind of a captain were you and what was your philosophy about being a captain? Well, that's a that's a great question. I guess you want to treat people like you like to be treated. Um, and and um, I, you know, people don't salute me. It's not military. And um, I always made a joke about it. I hate it when you people don't salute me, but they don't salute you. Um, they treat you with respect. They always refer to you as captain or sir. Um, so you do have that respect. And if and and you work with anywhere from 19 to 25 people on a crew. And after a while, you get a, you you have to get along. You 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 are like family. There's no place else to go. You're in, on an artificial society made of steel. Um and when I first started sailing all we had was a television and an antenna. And so you didn't always get TV. So you had a lot of card games and and things going on in a recreation room, but then as we progressed into the modern age, we had satellite TV, and and uh, we always had three meals cooked on the boat with a baker on board, and uh, eating was a great pastime, but uh, not a healthy lifestyle. <laughs> but um, as far as a captain, it's uh, you know, it's if you don't do what we say, well, you know, as we would always say, the ladder goes down at every dock, and you're welcome to go down that ladder if you don't like it here. Well, um, yeah, and that's tough. But on the other hand, you have to have people you can count on, right? Because it is. Um, it's a risky business. Uh, would you, um, by the way, I just want to mention, your brothers and sisters are a little tired of having to call you captain or sir. So we're kind of thinking that, it, you know, we're past that, if that's okay with you. We're going to stop that for now. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, so, um so let's, I mean, the Edmund Fitzgerald makes you think that, um, you know, reminds you about how dangerous it is to be, to run these ships on the Great Lakes. Um, and one of the reasons I always <clears throat> took that to be was that the Great Lakes, even though they're great and they're large and immense, is that they can kick up pretty quickly. Um, I don't know. I know that's a, certainly the way it is in Lake Erie. Um, Superior. Um, is Superior a more dangerous, you know, um, lake to cross as compared to Michigan or Huron? I think all the lakes have their own particular characteristic and particularly, uh, I guess, um, uh, how the axis is and how they lay. I mean, the, we always say the fetch of the wind and, and, and that's the length of that the wind has a chance to build a sea. So on Lake Superior, being mostly on the east to west uh, axis, you're, you're, you're going to be you have a big sea uh, if it's blowing out of the west or the east, depends which direction you're going. If you're on Lake Michigan... That's a north-south axis, so you're going to get a big sea building from the a north wind or south wind. Lake Erie, it's a northeast-southwest axis, so you get winds out of either of those directions, and you're at the opposite end of that lake. You're going to get a pretty big sea built up. Um, so they all, I, 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 I treat each one of them with respect. Yeah, it sounds like a, a good practice. So let's. You told me that when you talked before this, that the most common question you get from people is. What's the biggest wave you encountered? Talk a little bit about what is the biggest wave you encountered and tell me about, you know, a storm that you had to endure. What was your going through your mind? How do you handle that? Um, 
1983, I was on a on a ship. Uh, it was a, a 700 and uh, it was a 690 foot boat, and um, we got uh, we were with a captain who really never liked to anchor the boat, and so he would say, "Boy, we've been so lucky. We haven't been out any weather at all." And of course, in November and December, usually when you're going from a uh, you know, the big weather changes, temperature changes, you get a lot of weather. Well, that's very uncommon that you're never out in weather those kind of the years. So he went out in a big sea, and we were coming down Lake Huron. He was going to try to get home by Christmas, and we were going full speed. This boat was a pretty fast. It was a, it was a, actually a boat built in Sparrows Point, Maryland in 1952. Anyhow, um, the, the deck started cracking in half. Um, from one of the hatch combings from the hatches to the side shell. But we caught it in enough time. But after that incident, it was cold, too. It was a just barely cold winter. Um, after that incident, I had a whole different respect for weather. So I didn't hesitate to use an anchor and, and wait out storms. And, and I think most prudent uh, captains do that because what's gained if you do damage to a ship and, and, and because you're out in weather or the, the worst worst thing that could possibly happen so um that's what the anchors are for to, to you wait out the weather so uh anyhow but to, to answer your question probably 20 foot sea i've seen often on lake superior uh that would be the largest sea i, I probably witnessed and you were in it that 20 foot sea i was in it but fortunately i was on a thousand foot ship which has a they're a lot bigger than uh the the older uh ships has probably twice as much freeboard which is obviously the uh the uh, the size that are above the water, um, so you don't take a lot of blue water over the decks like you do the the older ships. Um, but I would never take a smaller ship out in a twenty foot sea. So you said blue water, which I find funny because um, in maritime you know lingo, blue water is like the deep deep sea, and I think of the Great Lakes. Uh, I think of Mississippi River as the brown waters, and I think of the Great Lakes as green waters. But is that just a terminology? I mean, is there some truth to any of that? Yeah, well, you could say green water, blue water. Anyhow, it's it's a solid wave coming over your your bow or coming over your deck, and 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 instead of a, a spray. Um, so you know you're adding uh, tons of water on your deck that add a lot of stress to the boat, and um, yeah, you, you know even though the the deck's supposed to be watertight, all the hatches are supposed to be watertight, it's not real comfortable. I I got. Uh, uh, in a, in a bit of a following sea once, and uh, we had a lot of water coming over the deck, and I didn't like it, but we rode good. But um, you know, that's that's part of the job. Your your job is to keep that boat moving. Did you ever get seasick even from the beginning? And did you know? Did you ever? I get seasick. How about you? Never, never, never have, never have. Um, and, uh, you know, because we don't roll a lot, they, and they don't pitch. Uh, they, you can stand on one end of the boat and watch it, the bow go up and down or the stern come up and down. They, they're made to spring, but uh, they don't pitch like a large ship where you're going up the wave and then down the wave, but they do roll. Um, I, I, don't think, uh, I don't, don't think about getting seasick, though. What was the best meal you ever had on one of your ships? Because you talked about eating is a great pastime. I believe I've been on, uh, I might have very well had some cookies that your uh, uh, your chef provided once when I came to visit you on, on one of the docks uh, in Chicago, and it was pretty darn good. What's your favorite meal that you ever had on a boat? 
Oh, that's a, that's a that's a tough one to uh, narrow down. You know, all, you you always want to get the best best cook or best chef, or they call them stewards on a boat, the best one that you have in the fleet. Years ago, they weren't that good of uh, cooks. They well, they were good, but it was all meat, and potatoes, and a lot of gravy, a lot of starches. And then in the nineties, we said, hey, you know, we'd like to start eating healthy, so we would have salad bars and. Uh, and uh, start to eat uh, more uh, healthy meals. But the question of um, the best meal, I guess the holiday meals are always good because they'll have like five or six entrees, you know, lobster and filet mignon and ham and turkey and more food you can even imagine you can can eat in, in a week, let alone one, one sitting. So the holiday meals were always something to look forward to. But I think that's very important because people give up a lot to be away from their families and their loved ones over the holidays. It's it's it's, it's almost painful to, to be out there. It's, it's but um, they do the best they can to make it a nice nice meal for you. You know, you mentioned being away from families. So on the, when you're doing this Lakers stuff in the Great Lakes, how long are you on a boat, and then how long do you get to be off? Um, for officers, it was um, which was the mates and engineers. Um, you were were two months on, one month off. And then for the unlicensed uh, people, it depend what labor union they were at, and they they probably could achieve if they had a lot of seniority, uh, probably uh, ten weeks off a year. But then we also lay our ships up when the Sioux locks close around the fifteenth of January, and you might be off until the twentieth of March. So that is also off time that is that you're on your own at home. So the whole time you were sailing, you're married to Lisa. Well, my sister-in-law love her a lot, and had two kids. So a lot of the time, Lisa was on her own raising the kids. And what I remember was that when you started sailing, there were no cell phones, uh, cell phones, sorry, no cell phones. And um, it's not like you had phone service on the ship. You had to wait till you were in a harbor and call her from a payphone. Is that right? That is correct. And there would be one payphone in a steel mill, and you'd have to walk. 2,000 feet up the dock to get to that cell phone, and there'd be five people in line to get on that cell phone. And then you wait five, wait for your chance on that phone, and you call your home number, and the line's busy. Talk about a <laughs> frustrating uh, event. And I remember once Lisa almost crying because she had missed a call from you, and she'd been waiting to talk to you about something you know specific about the house or doing you know household family kind of affairs, and she missed the call and she started to cry because it was going to be maybe another week or even longer than she could talk to you again. So uh, so I'm kind of guessing that uh, you know it's hard to keep families together in this, and you should be very proud you've been married what a hundred years now. It takes a special person to marry a sailor. Yeah, we will we'll be married 40 years as of uh, September 13th. Glad you remembered the date. That's good. Don't forget the gift. Um, I don't know. What is it, 40 years? Uh, 40 years, you should take her on a cruise or something. I'm, I'm just kidding. Yeah, that's what we want to do. We want to go on a cruise. Yeah, we want to go on a cruise for our, our anniversary. So, but uh, Lisa uh, got to sail with you sometimes, right? Yes, that, that was one of the, and I worked for a really, really good company. It was a family-owned company, which was, made it really special. And they really uh, tried to do a lot to have wives, wives and family come out and ride on, on the boat, which uh, was very unusual for unlicensed people to be able to have their family on board. But our owners did allow that. But I could have my wife on any time as a captain. And when you're a mate or deck officer or an engineer, you could have your, 
your wife on uh, for like two weeks a year. And uh, we would also try to get the kids on the boat and if we could accommodate them. So we were very open to doing that. I think I think that was very important that your family got to experience what, what you did for a livelihood. Yeah, so in the Great Lakes where you're 60 on 30 off, that sounds like a hardship. But, you know, for folks that go deep sea um, in the oceans, um, sometimes they're gone for months at a time. So it does take someone special to marry a sailor. There's no doubt about it. And a lot of marriages don't last. Um, but uh, people are called to the sea, and we're grateful that they are because they keep our economy moving. Uh, in the Great Lakes, you were moving um, iron ore that went down to the steel mills and and made cars and refrigerators and stoves, and um, which was hugely important for the economy of the Great Lakes and certainly the nation. You were moving some some of these uh, vessels are moving salt down to different communities. They use it for I guess uh, uh, for road salt. Um, gravel, sand and gravel used for construction. Um, so the Great Lakes is kind of a heartland of manufacturing. And we sometimes think about the finished products, but the raw materials moving are certainly just as important uh, and contribute just an extraordinary amount to both our economy and our quality of life. So I want to thank you for serving because um, merchant mariners, I think, tend to be overlooked. Um, because they're not in the military, and yet they are doing an extraordinary job. There's just no doubt about it. So what was what do, what would you consider the best port to go into, and what did you what port did you like the least to go into? Well, you know, you know uh, um, I, I started counting up all the different ports we've been in. Um, and it's been over seventy different ports on the Great Lakes. I would think that when we would take a, a commodity into a small port, um, some of these small ports had a power plant that took coal, um, and some would take limestone. Uh, you know, that's a, there's so many really neat ports, but I would say the least uh, impressive ports were the steel mills because they were pretty dirty. Um, they've cleaned up a lot since uh, I first started sailing. It used to be just awful, just awful being in a steel mill, but. Um, uh, to answer your question, I loved Marquette, Michigan. I loved uh, going into Grand Haven, Michigan. Um, how, how, where do you where do you stop? Um, we went to one nice steel mill over in Canada. That was in uh, uh, which which was a modern steel mill, but it was beautiful because you could walk out the gate and you're on a beach. Um, Nanticoke. Uh, <laughs> I guess to give a plug for one nice steel mill, anyhow. Um, but uh, any small port were beautiful, the small towns you came into, um, and, and people line up to see the boats come in, and they they thought we were really something, and we were all on the boat going, boy, we wish we were on the dock watching this boat go by. You know, that's interesting. Yeah, the steel mills. Once, um, when I used to work for the Port of Chicago, Russ came into the steel mill. Was it in Indiana Harbor? It must have been. No, you came into Chicago. Into Chicago. Okay, sorry about that. Uh, in, in any case... Um, so um, I had I was starting to date um, a guy who became my husband, and he happened to be in Chicago visiting at the time. And so Russ called. Again, we didn't have cell phones then. He called. I happened to be home. Said he was going to be in. And um, so Bob, my 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 boyfriend, and I drove to the steel mill to see him. And what I remember about this is that. It was like being in, you know, hell, but not in, a, in the bad way, but hot, burning, things going by. You had these big, huge um, bullets, you know, steel bullets full with molten steel, like going by on trains. And you would weave your way through these very narrow spaces to finally get to a dock 
that wasn't really all that wide or big. Um, and so it was not a pretty area necessarily. And mostly gravel you're climbing over. And what I remember is that I think you had basically just a ladder, like a big ladder that you would like climb up to paint your house on the dock um, up against the side of the of the the boat. And we had to climb up that ladder because I don't recall any handlebars or anything like that. And you climbed up the side of the boat to get up on the deck. And, um, and um, I, I don't know if I impressed Bob that I got him to do this and he got to meet you and how cool you were as a captain or he was terrified because I found out years later um, that he was afraid of heights, but he did it. And we got on the ship and we got to take a tour. Might've been when I had one of the cookies. Uh, and uh, I honestly, Russ, it was just so cool to say that, that, you know, the captain of this ship is my brother. So I want to thank you for that experience. I think there was probably plenty more and you've been very kind to all of us in the family. Now I'm the only one, I think of the siblings that didn't get to ride with you on a, on one of the boats. Is that correct? I think, um, the other five may have gotten a ride. I'm not sure. That is correct. Okay. I, my, my bad, because it was really, um, um, a lost opportunity. I, I've been on boats and done it, but never got to ride with you. So um, these these ships were built for the steel companies, right, basically. And um, so they would put, it seems to me that the, the ship operators, the ship owners would put a lot of money in the passenger cabins because the executives of these steel mills would want to ride them. So um, they were, some of them were pretty la-di-da, these uh, passenger uh, 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 um, uh, rooms and stuff, right? I mean, didn't they have lounges and the best view in the place? Yeah, they were. They were pretty nice. They, 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 uh, they you know, now they're, they're some of the decor is pretty outdated because we don't have all those big executives anymore. You know, everything being publicly owned, and now we'd pretty much just take uh, people out for rides that. Uh, for charities, raise money for charities, and they donate trips for that. But yes, we do have pasture quarters, guest quarters, but um, it's not like back in the old days where they had a private uh, cook for them and and, and a, a waiter that just waited on them. Now they eat with the officers and they eat when we eat. And But um, people are still thrilled, always thrilled to go for a ride. I, I enjoy the people that are riding now. Uh, the uh, the executive types they were kind of like bored with it because they could do it anytime they wanted to and but yes that is true we do have guest quarters so folks if you want to get a ride on a Great Lakes Lake you're going to have to look for uh, charities that are that get these trips donated and get your raffle ticket I will tell you that I have since then since you retired I every year try to find one and 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 purchase those tickets and have not won yet. So it's a, it's a kind of a regret that I didn't get to do that with you. Um, but, you know, you talked about people who get on these boats and they love these boats and, and they are really boat nerds. So um, tell me about this whole cult of boat nerds. Um, on Facebook, or there's a site called boatnerd.com, I think, and you can go on it and, and uh, they will show you where a boat is anywhere in the Great Lakes. And they follow these ships. And the way they do that uh, is um, vessels have... Um, transponders on board. Uh, and if you put an antenna up, almost anybody can do this, <clears throat> put an antenna up, you can see where those vessels are located. And uh, if you go to boatnerd.com, you can see on a, on a map everything, you know, where the boats are. And it's very cool. Uh, and um, uh, so, but there are folks that 
they, their pastime and their hobby is to follow these boats. And on Facebook, on the Facebook page, um, these folks will put a picture up. Hey, I saw this boat in this harbor. And everybody will say, oh, wow, that looks beautiful. Great shot. But it, it is much more than just people who are, you know, um, you know, chasing these boats around. It's a real art to understanding the history of these, these ships. And one aspect is that um, they last a long time in the fresh water, right, Russ? They, they, um, some of these, I think the oldest operating Laker for many years was a cement carrier. And it was like 100 years old. So is that kind of the case? I mean, these, uh, these ships hold up in the fresh water. That is that is correct. I think the oldest one now is a World War II built uh, ship. It's a cement carrier now, but you're right. The, the previous one was built in 1905, and it finally was converted to a barge. Um, I think uh, about eight years ago. And uh, uh, yeah, that's uh, you, you, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing if you talk to a saltwater sailor and say you have boats that are a hundred years old. They, they they can't they can't understand that. Yeah, in the salty bit, in the in the international trade, uh, if you have a ship is forty years old, that's getting pretty long in the tooth. But in the Great Lakes, so so um, I'm just looking at the boatner.com site, and you can go onto their page where they showed the vessel locations. There are vessels everywhere on this on this map. It's pretty amazing. If someone wanted to learn a bit more about the history and about individual ships. Um, how should they do that? Are there other sources or ways to do it? Or you just really got to get out and go see them? Uh, well, you know, there's some really nice maritime museums around the Great Lakes. And and uh, we have three museum ships that were four museum ships around the Great Lakes on the U.S. side that you can actually go on a retired or freighter. That would be one in Cleveland, one in Toledo, Ohio, uh, and one in, Superior, in Duluth, Minnesota. And, uh, and, and Sault Ste. Marie is another one. Now they're, they're older vessels, but you pretty much get an idea of what a laker looks like. And, uh, there's, uh, some other maritime museums that are very good. There's one in Sturgeon Bay. It's a beautiful museum. It has an, uh, a, a triple expansion steam engine and they have it hooked up where it actually moves. You see the moving parts and, uh, uh, it was uh, it was a very reliable engine uh, from days gone by. And, uh, so to see something like that is pretty neat. So so I mentioned on a podcast I did with Tyler and his partner Peter before I first started this one, our our, our podcast uh, North Coast Chronicles, and commented that these ships in the Great Lakes are often referred to as boats, not to imply that they are small or tiny, um, but the references that you basically are going steamboating, steamboating. Is that kind of that, why that happened, that that um, that people kind of call them boats instead of ships? Yes, that is true. And, and don't ask me how that started. And yeah, you're, we're going steamboating, but there's very few steamships left because most of the steamships have all been uh, repowered with diesels now. So, uh, you know, that, that, that term's getting a little long in the tooth, uh, steamboating, but, you know, old habits are hard to die. Uh, on the Great Lakes, um, and and the captain's still the old man, and uh, that's tough when you're one of the younger people on the boat and they're calling you the old man. But yeah, there's a lot of uh, terminologies that is just particularly to Great Lakes. Well, it, it sounds like um, a great idea to start your, uh, you know, if someone had an interest to start your learning process by checking out many of the maritime museums in the Great Lakes that are, are really terrific. And as as Captain Russ said, there's a couple of vessels that are floating museums. 
So check those out as well because um, it's just a it's just a fascinating part of Great Lakes history, and um, I think shipping in the Great Lakes has been going on for hundreds of years, and it's a risky business. But as you reminded me when we spoke, Russ, that um, even though there are horrible tragedies like the Edmund Fitzgerald, it used to be a whole lot worse, a lot more shipwrecks. And in one of our podcasts, we're going to talk about shipwrecks in the Great Lakes because there's, I think, about 14,000 different shipwrecks that, uh, that are, are out there. So here, so it's a loaded question, Russ. Would you recommend someone become uh, a captain or, become, or, or go sailing on the Great Lakes? Well, you know, it's not for everyone. But it's you, you. You you make a good wage. You can't spend your money on the boat. Well, maybe you can because now there's Amazon and they can send things to the boat. But uh, yeah, you, you you make good money. You, you get a good retirement, and um, uh, it's special. And you know, my drive to the office was walking up a flight of stairs. I didn't have to go through rush hour traffic. I saw the most beautiful sunrises and sunsets, uh, northern lights. Um, Beautiful. You, you enjoy the, the weather in all seasons to an extent, unless you got to be working <laughs> through, through through some of the uh, the bad weather. But um, yeah, I think it's 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 not for everybody. But um, uh, and 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 there's they need sailors. We need sailors. We need people that want to do that. Uh, the younger folks don't seem to be aware of that occupation, and uh, it's a good opportunity. Yeah, and you don't have to go to school, although you can. Uh, and there are trade schools um, in addition to the um, academies out there. There's also union trade schools where you can learn the basics and, uh, you know, become, uh, you know, uh, start from the bottom or get educated and start your way up. In all cases, you, you have to study hard, get your experience on board the ship, take your license exams with the U.S. Coast Guard. Um, but I'll tell you, Russ, you are one of the most interesting people at a cocktail party because inevitably there's nobody else ever there that was a captain on a ship, let alone a captain on a ship in the Great Lakes. So I always want to thank you for that because you always got great, great stories. So Tyler, um, now that I've said this, are you going to head out and check out some uh, some maritime museums? And I bet you're going to look Google now, Lakers and the Great Lakes. Oh, I'm already ahead of you. I'm currently on BoatNerds.com, which is a great site, a national uh, treasure, I would say, and it certainly is. a treasure trove. Yes, it is a treasure trove, and I think it's all nonprofit. So, uh, pretty great of, of people to to do that and see just where the ships are. And these really are unique and interesting vessels. They're almost all of them look different, and almost all of them have a uniqueness about them. Um, and when you get to know them, it, they feel almost like family. It's certainly to these the folks who follow them. Um, Captain Russ, you are just a gem for doing this for your 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 big sister. Thank you so much. Um, I learned a whole lot more about you than I knew before. I'm even more impressed with your knowledge and um, breadth of knowledge, depth of knowledge, uh, and your experiences. And I think um, I'm hoping that I think everybody, our listeners today, learned a lot about um, why uh, shipping in the Great Lakes is so special. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Well, you're welcome. And we barely scratched the surface, but we don't have sharks and we don't have salt, but we're sometimes, we're always fresh and sometimes frozen. <laughs> there you go. But um, boom Thanks everybody for listening to this episode of North Coast Chronicles, Tales of the Great Lakes. Be sure to subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network to hear our podcast, as well as the entire collection of coastal related podcasts, all for free. 
I'd love to hear from our listeners. Send me your thoughts and ideas for future podcasts to northcoastchronicles at gmail.com. I also want to send out a sincere thank you to Catherine Chambers for doing the violin solo of an old sea shanty for our podcast. The views of this podcast are mine and do not necessarily reflect the views of the U.S. Department of Transportation. Join us next time when we will talk about grape growing and wines in the Great Lakes. Be good to each other. See you next time. Thank you.